0: Welcome to the Bulwark Podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. Yesterday was a really kind of an epic day for me. Uh, as you know, I got my, my second vaccine shot about a week or so ago, actually more than a week now. And uh, my wife and I are sort of, you know, tentatively going back to life, going back to the real world. And so uh, w- what that entailed yesterday was uh, I got the oil in my car changed and we went to Ikea. And I have to say this was a big deal because this is like the first time I've really gone anywhere in a year. So our guest today is Tim O'Brien, who is a senior columnist for Bloomberg Opinion. He and I were talking about this. So, Tim, have you, you know, tentatively gone back to life yet? Or
1: I've not. I think I've been trying to figure out the exact date, but I think it was sometime around March 13th of last year. What well, was the last time I was in New York City? I live in Montclair, New Jersey, which is a burb west of New York. And my wife and uh, my youngest son and I have been uh, in full lockdown for basically a year. At this point, we haven't traveled outside our town. And even within our town, we've been pretty conservative about it. We are big social distancers, mask wearers. We are not flying the Don't Tread on Me banner on this kind of practical stuff. Um, But boy, it will also be great to get back to a normal world because it's been a very surreal year.
0: No, I, I'm looking forward to it. And for me, a, a normal world will be, all get to you know visit my kids and my grandkids. But I have to say, there's part of the normal world that I, I'm just not that anxious. I, I, I you know, I, I don't really ever want to have to get dressed up in a suit again. You know what I'm saying? I, I'm, I'm. And how I'm, many I'm people not, do
1: you really miss at work? You know, that's what the well, other it, thing you find out in lockdown. Well,
0: well see, here's the <laughs> thing, Tim. I'm, I'm an only child, so this is a little bit. This is, I'm going to confess, a little bit easier for me hey before we get started I just want to mention that uh, my, my newsletter today morning shots is out and I talk about what what what's what's wrong with HR1 and uh, at the risk of being completely misunderstood and I think Twitter is designed to be misunderstood. Uh, m- my argument is that we actually do face an emergency with voting rights uh, and it, the, the attack, on uh on on democratic norms is radical and needs a radical response but hr1 is not it it is overstuffed it's overloaded it is dead on arrival in the senate i think that's a tragedy so rather than be a dead ender and say that we ought to go ahead with all of the stuff that's in that legislation and and it is shall we say an immodest piece of legislation that's kind of a general way of saying it i mean it's, it's a sweeping sweeping uh piece of legislation that federalizes elections and rewrites campaign finance and changes the, the the rules for constitutionally protected free speech um what i suggest is perhaps a skinnier version of that and perhaps focusing a little bit more on the john lewis bill because i do think it's urgent that we need to do something but um, i'm just throwing it out there that uh that, that folks uh hr1 is uh, this dog is is not good is not going to hunt now tim i know that you've been writing about this as well it is extraordinary the full court press all across the country among Republican legislatures to make it harder to vote. I mean, there's, there's no, I mean, and, and, and a lot of this is built on the big lie from the election. And it's
1: obscene because it it, it runs against um, just the fundamentals of what a democracy is about. We should always be making it easier for people to have access to the vote. There are plenty of red States that have as long and efficient traditions with mail-in voting and extended voting hours. Um, uh, and obviously the timing of all this isn't lost on anyone. Uh, when you have a state like Georgia, I think, essentially stepping back decades in its um, the parameters it's throwing up around voting, it, it I think, shows how craven um, Republican machinations right now are in the wake of um, what should we call it? I was going to say the Trump debacle, but that seems far too gentle uh, yeah. a, a term. But uh, you know the seismic um, impact Trump has had on the party and the big lie, as you noted, around the election, mm-hmm. and it's it's depressing. You know, it just happened overnight in Iowa too. Um, you know, it happened you know, overnight. They, they limit.
0: yeah, they voted to limit early voting, but the Georgia thing is is so unsubtle. Uh, in two thousand and five. They approved absentee voting without having to make any excuse. And back in 2005, when they did that, the assumption was, well, this will help Republicans. Republicans will use it. So for 15 years, Republicans dominated the absentee ballot vote in the state of Georgia. That changed in 2020 when when black voters used it at a higher rate. And of course, was one of the major factors in what happened in 2020, in the presidential election, and then in the special election. And lo and behold, now the Republican legislature in Georgia decided that now they're going to change the absentee voting laws to make it harder to vote. Not subtle. No points for subtlety.
1: And and I think I think the GOP should embrace what that's about right now, which is um, I think not just in voting, but in in the economy in different areas, whether or not the, a good model for the United States is to um, develop rules or institutions or approaches that only benefit or or initially benefit elites. I think the, the 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 reasoned argument around that is if you take care of the more productive members of society, all boats rise. I, I think there's a lot of yeah. data that suggests that's not true, but at least come for, at it very transparently because that's what's happening with, with voting. There's, there's, the party is saying we only want a certain crop of people to have access to the vote. And it's not about stopping fraud, because there hasn't been any evidence of meaningful fraud around extended voting measures at all. And, and, you know, all the political scientists will say that it benefits, it, it tends to, in the long term, benefit both parties actually when voting rights are extended, but there's no question it also increases turnout among people of color
0: no it, it does and you know i I would have thought that this would have been there would have been a bipartisan consensus around all of this, but of course we're seeing that there's not a bipartisan consensus um around a lot of things although there are i mean apparently people like the fact that the Government is sending out money. I suppose that would be a bipartisan, uh, bipartisan (laughs) consensus. So I want to talk to you, uh, you know, for the, for for our listeners, Uh, I have been wanting to have you on the podcast for a long time, Tim, because you have been a student. You were a student of Donald Trump for many, many, many years, long before he went down the golden escalator. And so I'm really interested in getting your take on, on where we're at. So uh, give me a little bit of background. When, when, when did you first meet Donald Trump? I mean, you go back, you know, decades, don't you?
1: Well, yeah, you know, Charlie, like you, I'm a a Midwestern boy. I grew up in Northern Illinois and, and, um, went to New York for grad school, right. When Trump's popularity in the, you know, in the late eighties was cresting and I didn't have any idea really of who he was or why people cared. And, um, an investigative journalist for The Village Voice named Wayne Barrett, who had written a bestseller about municipal corruption called City for Sale, it was about corruption in the Koch administration, uh, had gotten a big contract to do a new biography of Donald Trump. And Wayne was one of the first journalists to ever really dig into Trump in depth back in the 1970s. He hired me as the research assistant on his book, uh, which would have been nineteen, basically 1990. And... Um, more or less from 1990 to 92, I worked for him as his research assistant. And that's how I first got exposed to Trump. That book came out right as Trump did his first big belly flop. Uh, He entered the tundra. He became a punchline for jokes about the excesses of the 1980s throughout the 90s. Um, And then in the early 2000s, I was at the New York Times. Um, During that period, I wrote a book about gambling in the mid-90s. I interviewed Trump in his office at Trump Tower For about two hours for that book, but he he was a figure in the book, but was was not at all a principal character. And then, you know, in the in the early two thousands, the apprentice uh, revivified this fossil, um, and and recast him as the entrepreneurial guru to the masses, at a time when out in the real world. His casinos were going into bankruptcy yet again. He was doing all of the all of the classic political machinations he had always engaged in. It was completely at odds with who he was on TV, but he got a men- tremendous traction across the United States through the Apprentice role. And I had a number. I would began covering him episodically for the New York Times, where I was a, a writer and then an editor. Um, and I wrote a, a few features about him and covered some of the daily ins and outs of his life. And he had become such a popular figure again. I had book uh, proposals come my way, and Which having is been always part of nice, that, it is always nice. And having been <laughs> part of that first book that was this deep investigative dive on his life from his birth to 1990, I wanted to do something that was more or less. A sequel to that book and also placed him in the culture. You know, why has this guy who's had all of these epic car crashes in his business, political and personal life, retained all of this traction in so many aspects of American life, politics, real estate, reality TV, casinos, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And the book that came out of that was Trump Nation, which was published in 2005. He cooperated extensively with that book. I think I've still Mm -hmm. probably spent more one-on-one time with him, I think, than any other journalist. Hmm. Um, uh, he did not like the book. Uh, he sued me for $5 billion. It's, I think the largest <laughs> libel lawsuit in us history.
0: $5 <clears throat> billion. Dollars. Okay.
1: With a B, which, which, yeah. which was larger than my advance, Charlie, I'll say that mm-hmm. out front. Slightly. And, um, yeah. Uh, claiming that, um, my representation of his track record as a businessman and claims he'd made about his wealth had slandered him, libeled him. And, um, he wanted damages. Uh, I had so you were ordered. one of the
0: first. You you were one of the first guys to say that he's not as rich as he claimed to be, and that's really what got under his skin.
1: Well, I, others had. I put a lot of clothing on it. I had very yeah. good sources in the Trump organization and elsewhere. Um, and um, as it came, you know, turned out in the litigation, you know, my figures were ballpark figures. They weren't exact, but I was mm-hmm. saying he was worth less than a billion at a time that he was saying he was worth mm. six which is why he sued me for five. That was the difference between how much he said he had and how much I said he had. Um, And, you know, I had taped everything. We had flown all around the country together on his plane. I had been to all of his homes. He called me two or three times a week. He routinely sent me these huge envelopes of newspaper clips about himself where he would have the sections about him outlined with a Sharpie or with a giant like arrow pointing to his name within the news article. Um, uh, and, and it's not cause I'm special. It's because I was at the New York times and Mm -hmm. he's a, he's a New York guy and the times to him was like the good housekeeping seal of approval. Mm -hmm. Um, he sued, um, that dragged out during the course of that litigation. We deposed him for two days on the record, caught him lying more than 30 times during that deposition about a whole series of financial and personal and political issues. Um, Got his tax returns. I think I'm the first person mm. outside of the Trump organization to see a series of years of his of his personal and business tax returns. Um, bank records, financial records, blah, blah, blah. He lost the suit in 2009. He appealed it. The courts refused to hear it. And it was finally dismissed in 2011. The appellate court refused wow. to hear it. And then I thought, you know, he was out of my life until he rolled down the escalator. So
0: so so if if, if, if we were to go back, if twenty twenty one Tim O'Brien could go back into a time machine and talk to Tim O'Brien and say, and by the way, this guy will be elected president of the United <laughs> States. <laughs> I'm sure you thought of that. What what would you thought? I, I just I joked about it in the book
1: because you know, in, in one of his books, I think Surviving at the Top, which he wrote after he was, you know after he had almost gone personally bankrupt, he said, "I'm not sure what I'm going to do now. Perhaps I'll, I'll I'll run for president." And and I had great fun with that in my book. That you know, it's only Donald Trump who would ever say, yeah. uh, "My you know I'm on my second divorce and I'm in a financial crater, so it makes sense for me to run for president." Yeah. And um, uh, and I was interviewed in 2015. I did think he would be the nominee uh, in 2016, and. And I dismissed a lot of the folks who said, there's no way he'll be the nominee. I did not believe he could get elected president. And I was really wrong about that. Um, uh, So,
0: So you've been watching him for many years and particularly this deep dive into his finances and his tactics and how he goes, you know, goes about conducting himself. So I guess the question is, what happens now? I really want to get your sort of your insight into what happens now. He no longer has the protections of the presidency. You, you have these investigations, Southern District of New York, uh, the New York attorney general, possibly, uh, uh, possibly uh, civil litigation. Uh, he's got massive debts coming. So, you know, I mean, there's been a lot of you know, speculation that he's facing a world of, of hurt. What, what is your take on what he faces right now? What are you watching?
1: Well, there's no question that he faces existential, financial, and and <clears throat> um, existential legal threats. Existential, yeah. And I think that that's one of the reasons he embraced the big lie with such gusto. He, he didn't authentically believe that that election was stolen from him, but he is he has a reptilian sensibility about what people want to hear and what he needs to do to overcome. There's always been two lenses that can be used to explain absolutely everything Donald Trump does. And, and that has been true for, uh, you know, 74 of his 75 years. Um, It's either about self aggrandizement or self preservation. And, and, and the big lie, the self aggrandizement part of that was exiting the presidency. He's a media addict, there's no way he was going to not want to continue to be in the spotlight, and not want to stop having road shows in which he could stand in front of adoring crowds who would watch him perform. That's the self-aggrandizement piece of it. The self-preservation piece is, uh, he has a number of lawsuits, as you noted, I think the most potentially most potent and threatening to him is the Manhattan district attorney's mm-hmm. criminal
0: investigation,
1: which involves, I think. I said SDNY. Easy,
0: I mean, I'm sorry. I meant the Manhattan DA. I'm sorry. Well, I think the SDNY no.
1: has in theory has had something yeah. going, but that's, that's looked dormant. And there was always the mess of whether or not Bill Barr would let that be an authentically independent investigation. Whereas, and it's a federal office, whereas the Manhattan DA is, um, that's yeah, a local prosecutor who's not beholden to any of the federal uh, protections Trump enjoys. Um, it is easily the most sprawling and sophisticated financial investigation he's ever been exposed to, including Robert Mueller's, because Mueller did mm. Mueller punted on that stuff, yeah, unfortunately. And it's, you know, it's going into the Trump organization. It's going into his eldest children. It's going into his accounting off his accounting records and his accountants. It's going into his banks and his banking records. Um, he's in the crosshairs in a very, very dangerous way there. And he's exposed to things like possible tax fraud, financial fraud, falsification of business records, money laundering. There's any number of things that could come out of this. Um,
0: and as you point yeah. out, if if he's ever deposed um under under oath, we we know what his pension for lying is. Would you say thirty times he lied during your deposition?
1: <laughs> yeah, he is a, a lawyer's nightmare, Charlie. And he is the last client you would want to put with a hand on a Bible, doing almost anything, frankly, with his hand on the Bible, but specifically, <laughs> specifically being in a deposition in which he one could blow up the defense because he lies so frequently and also get shredded personally because of it. He, he's a pathologic liar and, um, and he just can't stop himself. Uh, but also and-
0: you, you, you ran through some of the business things and, and, and my sense, and you obviously know this a lot better than I do. So uh, that, that this, it, his company has always been uh, very, very closely held and throughout his entire life This is a guy who's been pushing the envelope, who has been fudging the numbers, and and he's gotten away with it over and over and over again. So the potential for for the investigators to come across documents where he clearly inflated values, engaged in insurance fraud, any of that stuff, seems very, very high. I guess the question is, what do you think they're going to go for the big thing, or do you think it's going to be like Al Capone, and they're going to get him on some something relatively smaller that is you know unrefutable what what you know you know what I'm getting at here yeah, the, I knew uh, i th- yeah.
1: i think it could be both frankly there's no question and the al capone reference is is really useful i think because like trump al capone retired to florida thinking he could <laughs> live in peace down there and then his accountant ratted him out uh because prosecutors found the accountant to be the the weak spot. And that's definitely what's happening right now with Trump. And if people within his own organization begin flipping on him, it's going to fall like dominoes at that place because he's never had a history of being loyal to other people. So there's not going to be a deep reservoir of loyalty toward him from people in his own organization. Um, uh, he has. There's no question that he's inflated the value of his buildings when he's wanted to get loans against them and then manipulated the value of those same buildings when it came time to paying the tax man. Um, he will argue that it's common practice in the real estate right. industry, which it is. Um, but there are reasonable boundaries around all of that. And, and if he has exceeded those into, um, illegalities, he's going to have a lot of problems. That's certainly going to be an area. I think for both legal and historical and political reasons, um, I think, uh, an examination of where his sources of funding come from is... Unfortunately, one of the great unanswered questions of his presidency that could get answered by the Manhattan DA's investigation. Um, uh, there's no question that Trump, long before he went into the presidency, was courting money from Russia in his businesses. Um, he was interested in doing business in Russia. He, we know from court records that he got a, a, a big chunk of funding that came from murky uh, locations in Eastern Europe. Um, to the extent that you know, we find out what his actual financial tethers are to the Middle East, um, throughout the Arab world, uh, China and Russia, it would put clothing on understanding all of these dangerous and irresponsible dances he engaged in with dictators while he was president. Mm. Um, He may not get prosecuted for those things, but they would at least fill in important blanks about how financially corrupted his Oval Office was by his own personal financial interests. Um, the tax sorry. stuff, you know, he learned the tax shenanigans at his father's knee. Fred Trump, his dad, essentially got excommunicated from public housing first at the federal level for ripping off the federal government on, on public housing contracts that are what the Trump's family's wealth is built upon. And then he, he tried to do the same thing in New York State a little while later, and then he got kicked out of New York for basically the same <laughs> behavior, and and after that just became an investor, and and the Trump family's argument around all this was, anytime the government does this, it's because it's Big Brother, the big government is coming in to rip you off. Big government's bad. It's not that oh maybe we were unethical or maybe we did criminal things, and and we deserve to be punished. Um, and Trump absorbed that, and you know when he invades against big government and and tells average working class Mm -hmm. voters, I'm on your side. He speaks from an experience in which he feels the government has oppressed him as well. And I think- So there's there's an
0: an element of sincerity in him playing that victim card.
1: At least authenticity and sincerity. I I, I never use the word sincerity with him because- No, um, You know, but it is authentic in some ways. And I think voters pick up on that. You know, voters spot inauthentic behavior a mile away. It's a damning thing for a politician- of any party to be considered inauthentic, and I think one of Trump's political strengths is his voters believe he's the real thing.
0: Yeah. So you 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 mentioned that he learned all of this, you know, at his father's knee, and, and the New York Times had that incredible deep dive into the fact, in, into the into his taxes and, and his history, uh, essentially establishing that that much of his wealth was based on years and years and years of tax fraud. Um, amazingly, that didn't move the needle. There was a period as well where he was banned, but basically, none of the banks would lend him any money, with the exception of Deutsche Bank. So, in his world, am I right about that, by the
1: way? It's uh, not just a period, Charlie. It was basically from 1992 until the present. No major establishment bank around the world, but for Deutsche Bank, would lend Donald Trump money because he burned them. He. He he walked away from over three billion dollars in loans he owed them. <laughs> nice and, shot. and you know these stories he tells about how I got through bankruptcy by teaching the banks a lesson is very similar to the big lie he's told about the election result. Um, uh, he he's recast his his abysmal failures as a businessman as I beat the banks down, I got through uh, uh, a devastating bankruptcy and I came back stronger. And the fact is the banks put him out to pasture and had The Apprentice not come along accidentally, Donald Trump would be not even a footnote in in the history of the country in New York.
0: Why was Deutsche Bank different? Why did they keep, keep doing business with him?
1: I think two reasons. Uh, they were expanding from Germany in, into the US in the late 90s and early 2000s and they wanted to make a name for themselves and I think they were willing to bring in clients who had high name recognition in the idea with the idea that it would help them build out their business more broadly. So Trump benefited from that. I think I think mm-hmm. Europeans have never really understand understood the extent to which you know established New York financiers and, and developers always regarded him as a cartoon character. But mm-hmm. overseas he was seen as this embodiment of the. US business community. Um, and then secondly, Deutsche Bank has had, um, until very recently, and they've tried to correct this more recently, but they had very horrible internal controls around things like money laundering, the transmission of funds globally, um, the nature of some of the people the bank worked with, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. They faced, you know, rafts of lawsuits and fines and regulatory actions around all of this, um. And I think
0: it was a a perfect marriage.
1: It was. (laughs) It absolutely was, and it's continued up until very recently.
0: Okay, very recently, and finally, they cut him off now. So, uh, give me some sense of the implication of that. Right before the election, we got the report that he had four hundred million dollars in debts coming due relatively soon. Deutsche Bank is no longer doing business for him. So, how how is that going to play out? Where's he going to come up with that money?
1: To make the math a little easier on all that, he actually has over a billion in debt. The 400 million, the Times identified, actually had been in um, his personal financial disclosures as president. I think the extra magic sauce um, the Times brought to that analysis was that Trump had personally guaranteed that money, which is sort of hysterical because his father always told him, don't guarantee. He almost went bankrupt in the early 90s because he personally guaranteed. He told me when he, when I was working on the book, I'll never do that again. I'll never personally get it. It's not wise to do so. And then, bam, the second he got access to $100 million, he said, sure, if you give me more, I'll personally guarantee it. But he has, um, you know, a little bit north, say, of $2 billion worth of assets. And, um, the most valuable chunk of that is about five or six buildings in San Francisco and New York um, that make up the lion's share of his personal wealth. Uh, As you know, COVID-19 has wreaked havoc on Mm -hmm. urban, commercial, and residential real estate. So those valuations are really stressed right now. And he's got over a billion dollars in debt against that. So he's not, you know, the idea that people are saying is this shows he's bankrupt, not true. But he is in tough financial straits because as those valuations come down, which they may further and he's unable to pay his debts, other members of the real estate community and the financial community are going to smell blood in the water. And it's going to be, it will get increasingly harder for him to sell things, which he may need to do to pay down his debts. If everybody thinks he's so weak, he'll sell for any amount of money. And so you could see this dramatic shrinking of everything that he has. And, you know, Trump does not have an empire. Um, uh, certainly, the bulwark I think has more employees than the Trump organization, really? and oh uh, yeah, it's a it's a we're mom mean. and pop. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, I, I I think the Trump organization in you know in, in New York, I would say it's maybe two dozen people, um, and it's an oxymoron because nothing Donald Trump touches is organized. Uh, you know, it should be <laughs> called the Trump Carnival LLC, but, um, um, and. Uh, and it's really built on these sort of legacy real estate assets, throw off a lot of money, and then new trophy properties he's he's embraced, like golf courses, which is an industry that's peaked, and or marketing his name like a human shingle on everything from underwear and mattresses to um, vodka and board games. And the man who led an insurrection and tried to undermine democracy is going to have a hard time squaring that with the brand that he once tried to promulgate. So the, the, you know, the the outward facing stuff that he loves that his name's on could go right down the drain, but that stuff is not where he makes most of his money.
0: So let's bring this up to the current, David as you mentioned, you mentioned the insurrection. I really had the sense that, that when he was pushing the big lie about the election, that there was really a sense there of of fear of leaving the protections of the White House. I mean, he, he was clinging to power in, in a way that, that, you described it as, you know, his instinct for self-preservation that, that, that really had kicked in for him that not having the immunities of being the president, not being able to dangle pardons in, in front of potential witnesses, there was something about that that he just could not tolerate. So there was a lot of fear on his part or anxiety about what would happen if he was not in the White House going forward. Do you agree with that?
1: Um, oh, a million percent. And, and all the reporting around that flying into rages at his own staff. Um, and, you know, it began to, how he was going to respond to this. Really, you got the first glimmer of that on election night when Fox called Arizona for Biden. And Jared and, and, and Donald both got on the phone to Fox to complain, and they were apoplectic about it. Um, Fox might have been a little premature that night, but they weren't making a reckless call. And the, obviously, the, the reality played out. That call ended up being correct. But I think Trump, you know, in that very moment, began trying to figure out ways he could um, exert extra electoral influence to yeah. change an outcome that scared him, uh, okay, so it, you know he,
0: that was that was my sense. I mean, he that he really didn't. I mean, when you look back on the Mueller investigation and some of the other investigations, the way that he in fact did use the power of his office to protect himself to obstruct justice. I mean, it was not that he attempted to obstruct justice. I believe that he actually succeeded in obstructing justice, and so he was aware of having that power, and perhaps even more than aware of how vulnerable he would be if he didn't have those strings to pull.
1: And he learned that on the job. I think you're right. 100% right. And, and you know, the Mueller report <clears throat> has ample, ample examples of obstruction of justice. M- Mueller more or less said he thought a- obstruction of justice existed, but others would have to choose whether or not to prosecute that. Obviously, Bill Barr made another choice. But Trump didn't come into the presidency knowing um, mm-hmm. uh, anything about Article One. <laughs> <laughs> or where uh, Iran is on a map, or what um, he could do with offices like the Justice Department, right and mm-hmm. and the and the kind of constitutional powers he enjoyed. But once he learned and learned it in these brawls with Mueller, and then with, through two impeachments, it gave him this sense that he could bend rules willy nilly, and if necessary, even subvert the law and democracy to retain power.
0: Mm-hmm. So this brings us up to the moment we're at right now where the president is making it very clear that that he, he the, the fundraising grift is going to continue forever. Uh the the news over the last 24 hours is that he put out a statement saying, you know, that uh, no more money for rhinos, uh don't give money to the Republican National Committee or the Republican Senate Committee or the Republican Congressional Committee. Give it all to me. Give it to my super PAC, you know, through donaldtrump.com or whatever it, it is. The fundraising that he's been engaged in since the election, that creates kind of a massive slush fund for him, doesn't it?
1: It does. And again, speaking in terms of learning on the job, when he ran in 2016, uh, he kept saying he would self-fund. He never put a meaningful yeah. amount of money into any of his his, his electoral efforts. Uh, the, the RNC bailed him out financially as a candidate once he was the nominee and i think at that point he was like okay so there's these republican institutions that will give me their financial muscle when i need it and then 2020 rolls around and he he has that embedded and he's done a lot of his own fundraising then he loses and he he figures out his first electoral funding grift which is to tell his supporters the big lie the election was 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 stolen and i need your money for donald trump legal defense fund and I, as I recall, I think that got as high as almost $200 million in donations between like election day and the end of December, all of which he can keep. And we know that very little of it, very little of it has been dispersed to, uh, uh, to, to mount a defense or to even fund the suits that, that claimed election fraud. And I think he learned there was this aha thing went off for him and his siblings, his children. Which was, oh, I can I can use campaigning as a for-profit enterprise. and and I can continue to do that when I leave office. And I think that that's what's in, like informed his, uh, you know, salvos he's fired across the GOP of don't use my name, don't use my image. It's classic brand and copyright protections that instead of wedding to a business, he's wedding to fundraising, political fundraising efforts so he can keep the money and any republican voter who thinks that donald trump is actually going to use a dime that you give him to pursue classic conservative policy goals or the interests of average americans or the interests of affluent americans should just hold on to their wallets
0: so tim this dynamic between you know donald trump and the republican party it feels like it's an old story, but it's still fascinating because it's playing out. And this this back and forth with the RNC is just sort of the latest chapter where he clearly wants to go to war with with Mitch McConnell. He clearly wants to go, go to war with uh, all of the dissenters. And it's kind of interesting because you have even have Kevin McCarthy, uh, who's willing to suck up on you know, whenever it's, it's necessary, telling him, don't don't do this, don't do this. But he's he's launching. I, I, I don't know how it's going to play out um, in, in terms of the Republican civil war, because, you know, if Republicans haven't figured out by now, the the point you just made, he is, he's, he's not going to be loyal to them. He's not going to be a team player and he will destroy anyone that crosses him, no matter what the implications are for Republican electoral victories. Right. I mean, and yet they, they haven't seemed to have come to grips with that yet. Well, I think it's hard for the GOP to come to grips with it because the party
1: has an identity crisis. And I think, I think the, um, the policy goals and, and the public position that Ronald Reagan gifted the party um, from 1980 through 1988 and that the party made great strides off of in the wake of, of his presidency was hawkish foreign policy, uh, fiscal probity, lower taxes, law and order. And now baked into a little of that too was, uh, uh, it wasn't overt, but baked into it was, was I think, um, racial dog whistles that were these people of color coming over the border to take your jobs or welfare Queens are freeloaders on your tax dollar. Uh, it wasn't of course, nearly as overt as Trump made it, but it was, it was, it was an underlying emotional string that was being plucked to help sell the agenda, but the agenda had classic conservative principles baked into it. And and then I think in the intervening decades, you know, the, the culture wars um, became more paramount as the U.S. economy accelerated. Job disagreements and, and economic disagreements weren't as paramount to, to big chunks of the electorate. and The Cold War had gone the, away. Cold War had gone away. And so the political dialogue devolved into issues on religion, uh, civil liberties, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And, um, uh, um, and then you have the two, 2008 financial crisis, which creates a, a an economic rift and, and a jobs vacuum that neither party responded to well, in my opinion. And um, Donald Trump stepped into that vacuum by embracing economic populism and overt racism to appeal to understandably aggrieved um, uh, industrial workers, white workers with a high school education who have been battered around for decades, and um, the problem with that is is racism is wrong and bad, and even if it's a winning strategy politically, it is grotesque and economically, uh, and, and I think Biden is wrestling with this now, the country has to figure out to what extent do we, do we work hard to revive our economic output built on manufacturing and offer a safety net to the people who've been dinged by those historical changes, while not threatening all of the innovative uh, parts of the service economy that are feeding, feeding things. And neither party knows how to create a message around that that is a unifying message. A unifying mm. economic message, uh, and Trump authentically didn't care because he's a performance artist. All he wanted to say was, "I feel your pain. I will solve it." He never solved it, and then he walked away from this messy he, he created by with a cult of personality in his pocket. So the GOP now has to say, "What what clear headed policy proposals do we put out there that are classically conservative that are also restorative and and and?" of necessity, even if they don't feel like it ethically or morally, inclusive. Because the key to the United States economy for the last, you know, almost the last century has been a a huge growth in the middle class and an economic enfranchisement that is broad-based. We don't want a Latin Americanization of the U.S. economy. And yet we now know that income inequality has, has, has has shot up, and we have incredible racial animosity and racial divisions. And that's not a winning strategy. China will beat us into the ground if we fail to rise to this moment. And, and I think that's what you see both parties wrestling with right now, is identities built around what, is it, what does it mean to be an American as a human being, and then what does it mean to keep the American economic engine running at full speed? that mm. enfranchises everyone it needs to enfranchise. And those are tough questions. We see that now in the bailout debate, right? And and I think, you know, Mitch McConnell has to confront the fact that he's a bit of Dr. Frankenstein here. I think he liked the monster he created because it got him a massive tax cut for affluent Republican voters. It got him a more conservative court, and I think he thought he could then drive out of the tunnel. Um Uh, you know, with Trump in the passenger seat and drop him off on the side of the road and keep going. And lo and behold, along the way, uh, Trump took control of the wheel. And I think McConnell wants to get the wheel back, but how tactically does he go about that at a time when 30 million Republican voters more or less adore Donald Trump?
0: Uh, that is the problem. It's it's the problem. The the party has a leadership problem, but it has a base problem. By the way, speaking of all of this stuff, I, I thought Lindsey Graham's comments over the weekend, where he's, compar- you know, talking about the special magic of of Donald Trump and the yeah. analogy uses that he's a combination of Jesse Helms, P.T. Barnum, and Ronald Reagan. And he thought that was a compliment. I thought that was interesting. You know, they, you have this, you know, racist senator who had filibustered the Martin Luther King Jr. holiday, P.T. Barnum, who ran circuses and Ronald Reagan. And he, and he thinks, and I don't, by the way, I don't think he's wrong in saying he's a combination of all those things. But, <laughs> but right. this, this, this is, this is Lindsey Graham trying to explain why he's a great guy. It's like, really? This is, you know, <laughs> I and don't know. And also
1: Lindsey Graham saying he likes that.
0: Yeah, that's what I'm saying. He he likes it. Jesse Helms, P.T. Barnum, and Ronald Reagan. This is your vision of the future. Not to mention that uh, that's not exactly a forward-looking agenda there. But uh, Tim O'Brien, thank you so much for joining me. I appreciate it. This was was every bit as interesting as I was hoping it was going to be.
1: It was a privilege for me, Charlie, and it's always good to catch up with you. Thank you.
0: And thank you all for listening to the Bulwark Podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. We will be back tomorrow and we will do this all over again.